Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Good morning, church. Good morning. That is correct. My boss was here last week, and so if y'all could do me a favor and not laugh at my jokes as loud as you laughed at his, that's pretty good. I mean, like, no louder than that. That's kind of the limit. That's the threshold we're going to set. It is a pleasure to be here with you this morning. I'm sorry my family can't join me. My wife actually leads the preschool and children's ministry at our home church in Corpus Christi at Yorktown Baptist Church, and so my family is worshiping there today. But I am so delighted to be here with you. I do have to confess, this morning I did something I haven't done in months since we kind of went to the more quarantine lockdown life, and that is I ironed my clothes. I haven't done that since March And as I was doing that, I wondered, when did society decide this is how we're going to live, right? Like, I have enjoyed the fact that Zoom calls don't really pick up wrinkles, and I thought if I was running for city council, that would be my platform. Let's just all agree as a community, wrinkles are okay, right? Like, let's just be fine with that. We got bigger problems in the world. Why do we need to press our clothes? It just seemed ridiculous as I was doing it today. But then I remembered I was coming to Rockport, and that's kind of y'all's ethos anyway, right? I mean, like, y'all are good with that, so I feel like I'm amongst my people. Uh, It is good to be here with you. In fact, a few years ago, I actually got to uh, stand here and preach uh, here at Coastal Oaks in June of 2018, and... I had a great experience, and I expected that because we had some dear friends who were members for a long time here, Jody and Stephen Summers. They just speak so highly of this church, and I am so glad to be here with y'all. I am glad to worship alongside of you, and wow, what a great job by your worship team today. They did a fantastic job, the message they shared. Uh, My man over here on the bass, I don't know if y'all noticed, he swapped to a fretless bass there for a little bit, and that's, like, y'all need to appreciate that because he went from, like, driving a car with sort of designated lanes to driving a boat where you can just go anywhere and you'll find out like when you've gone to the wrong place you're just kind of making it up as you go that is that's not every church but y'all have that here at Coastal Oaks and I appreciated that and it's because we're family that I'm going to tell you the story that I'm going to tell you today okay I wouldn't tell this to a place that I was going for the first time because this may lose all credibility like for me in this first few moments like you may decide we're just going to get up and leave and I would understand that because I'm about to tell you one of the worst things I've ever done in my life and it occurred when I was 10 years old uh, when I was 10 I participated in Bible drill at my church. You don't know what Bible drill is? Is anybody? It's where we take something holy, like God's word, and we turn it into a competition because that's like, I don't know why we're supposed to do that. But I, as 10, 10 years old, I loved it. I was in, right? I'm pretty competitive. I thought this sounds great. So I spent a year memorizing all sorts of scripture. And I memorized the order of the books of the Bible. And man, I spent time every single week going over that. And it came down to competition time in the spring. And they, they're structured so that you have like a church competition. And then you have a city competition. And if you do well at those, you go all the way to state. So at the church competition, I did fantastic. Zero mistakes. 
And a competition is like this. They would have a line on the ground and they'd stand you up in a classroom and they would call out a scripture. And if you had it memorized, you would step across the line and then for accountability, they would call on you sometimes. And then there was another portion of the competition where they would ask you to look up a book of the Bible within like 10 or 15 seconds, whatever it was. And you'd have to quickly find that book. And they weren't easy. It wasn't Psalms or anything like that. No, they were like hard ones, Zephaniah or something. And then you're having to like flip through it and you have to put your finger in the Bible and then step across the line in the time limit and they would call on you and you didn't just need to know the book you needed to know the book before the book and the book after I mean this was like this was hardcore you knew everything backwards and forwards and so I did my church competition zero mistakes going on to city so go on to city it's at First Baptist Church in San Antonio 10 years old studied I'm like I'm ready for this moment perform flawlessly zero mistakes I mean I knew the stuff this was like this was me I was shining in this moment I knew my Bible backwards and forwards I go to state Hyde Park Baptist Church in Austin Texas I'm in this classroom my family has come and not just like my mom and dad and brother they've invited people to drive to Austin to come and watch me turn through my Bible you didn't realize this could be so exciting but it was tense this uh, this competition and I'm doing great and then we get to the part where we have to start looking up the books of the Bible and if you can imagine there being a line right here um, they they call out the books of the Bible and I'm just I'm feeling the weight right I mean like I understand now those kickers who have to hit like the last second field goal in the Super Bowl like because I understand pressure because I'm at state competition of Bible drill and I start getting nervous I like I'm not I just feel the seconds ticking away and I'm like I'm not going to get to this book I I don't get to the book and and I'm just I'm feeling like my whole life like flashing before my eyes my my life can take one of two different paths in this moment and what happens if I make a mistake and I have this thought they don't come by and look to see where you're actually at in your Bible they just ask you oh you know where the story's going huh you you've already figured it out they just ask you the book before, the book, and the book after. And I realize if I sort of tip it this way, they don't know where I'm at. So as long as I'm in the zip code, I'm probably going to be fine. And I put my finger down and just step across the line. And they call on me, and I know the books, and I step back. Ladies and gentlemen, I cheated at Bible drill as a 10-year-old. That is who is standing up in front of you, pretending like I'm going to be able to offer anything of substance today from the text. Let me take my finger off real quick. That is who you have in front of you, somebody who cheated at Bible drill. And I just, I felt all of the conviction you could muster in the entire world in that moment. And I remember walking out, and my parents were so proud of how well I had done, and I just broke down, like, I cheated, you don't, you don't understand. It was awful telling them what had happened. It was so bad. And I've thought about that moment many, many times in my life, but as I was reading today's passage in Matthew chapter 9, I was thinking about that situation, and if Jesus had manifested himself right there in that moment, he had shown up in the parking lot as I was confessing to my parents, and he had just kind of pulled me aside and said, Chris, anything you want right now, I will give you the desire of your heart. What is it that you would want? I almost 
sure, surely would have said, if, if you'll just like take away the embarrassment and the shame that I'm feeling in this moment. And he said, sure, great. What, what else would you like? Well, I just, I don't want my parents to think less of me. Oh, done. What else do you want? Well, I don't want like my church leader to find out and then for them to be embarrassed. Great, we can do that. And I realized that we would have had to have gone a long way down that list of things that I wanted before I would have remembered. Oh, and Jesus, if you would like forgive the sin that caused me to lie, like if you would heal the brokenness that's in my heart that even at 10 years old, I, I somehow knew there was this path where I could follow you and honor you, even if it meant I wasn't going to do well at a competition, and instead I chose the other way, we would have had to have gone a long time down the list before I would have remembered, oh, Jesus, if you would also forgive the sin that still shows up in my life over and over. Because sometimes... I want Jesus to be a really good fixer in my life. I'm not really all that interested in him being a great forgiver in my life. I want him to just fix some problems. And I have to remember that Jesus ultimately came and lived and died so that I could have the opportunity for forgiveness. That I could have reconciliation with God. That I could stand before him justified because my sins could be forgiven and I shouldn't reduce him down to just being somebody who can fix my immediate issues and problems and the difficulties that I seem to find myself in. Myself in. Not that those things don't matter, as we're going to see in the story, but ultimately Jesus is more concerned with the sin problem in my life. So if you have a Bible today, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, first few verses here in Matthew chapter 9. I'm just going to read uh, through them. We're going to walk through this story uh, together. It begins by saying, Jesus got into a boat and he crossed over and he came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I'm going to pause for just a moment right there. Think, think about this. I, kind of put yourself in the story for just a moment. You've got Jesus showing up on a boat. There's people who are probably gathered around the shoreline because the word of Jesus has started to get out. He has done some incredible things. He's sort of been teaching people, know who this guy is, and now he's showing back up to his hometown, and people are there waiting for him. He rides on this boat, he gets on the shore, and immediately he's greeted with some people who have brought him a paralytic, somebody who cannot walk. They've carried this mat and laid him in front of Jesus, which is an amazing thing, right? That they recognize somebody with a need, they bring him to Jesus, they lay him down, and we kind of know what they were probably expecting Jesus to say in that moment, right? They thought, man, look, this guy, he's, he can't walk. Jesus, you've done all these incredible things. Here you go. Do your thing, Jesus. They bring him to Jesus. And it says that Jesus sees their faith, and he says to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I doubt that was what they were thinking. They probably weren't expecting that, right? That's, that's not how they thought the story was going to go. When I was a kid, we had a boat growing up, which was partly so we could have enjoyment on the weekends, partly just to frustrate my dad on Thursday nights as he brought it home and tried to fix it, right? Perpetually something wrong. Uh, I, I don't know why he always went through that difficulty, but nevertheless, we grew up having a boat, and one time we took it to the lake, and we uh, were at this dock, and I was kind of walking along the dock, and there was a board that was missing, like one of the planes 
planks, only I didn't know that. So as I'm going along the dock, start to kind of jog, and my foot goes where that plank should have been and falls through the dock, and my leg just scrapes against that next board, and I am in agony. Oh, man, it hurts as bad as you would expect. I still have a scar on my shin from this experience. And as I'm there, my foot kind of hanging through the dock, and I pick it up, and there's blood draining from my leg, and my dad's over at the boat, and I'm yelling at my dad, Dad, I fell through the dock, and I'm just, I'm out of breath in that moment. My dad tells me, just put it in the water, like is what he says. Just put it, I was like, that's not what I need to hear. That's not, there's germs. This is terrible. That's not what I'm expecting in this moment. I want compassion. I want you to notice. I want you to look at me. I want, I want you to do something. Nah, just put it in the water, son. I was like, what? what? That's not going to help anything. That was not what I was expecting in this moment. I was, I was disheartened uh, in that time. And I imagine these friends probably felt the same way. They bring this person who has an obvious physical need to Jesus. They have heard stories about the physical healings Jesus has done. They lay him down. They get this moment. And Jesus answers, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Well, that's great, Jesus. But isn't there something else that you want to do in this moment? Isn't there something else that's maybe going to happen? I mean, the sin part of that, that's great. But isn't there something else? Your sins are forgiven. I mean, as readers and, and students of the word, we ought to be asking in this moment, what is Jesus getting at here? What's happening? Why, why would Jesus do this? Because this is different than what he has done in previous chapters up to this point. And in fact, we know that this is different. This is a really big turning point because look at the response to Jesus saying this. In verse 3, Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Blasphemy, blasphemy. That's a big church word that, that gets thrown around in the scripture. And maybe sometimes we might have a hard time pegging the definition. Blasphemy is simply taking on God's attributes for ourselves or doing something that only God can do. Taking on God's attributes for ourselves. The scribes see Jesus saying your sins are forgiven and they are not on board. They say this man is taking on God's attributes for himself. This man is doing what only God can do. And for them, this is a step back. They don't like this at all. And it's an important turning point because if we were to jump back into Matthew chapter 8, we'll see that Jesus has done some really incredible things. Matthew chapter 8 starts with Jesus cleansing a leper. He heals a leper, somebody who would have been at the edge of society, who would have been forgotten about, who nobody would have cared about. Jesus heals him. And then the next story is Jesus heals a centurion servant. A centurion, man, that is a Gentile, somebody outside of the Jewish faith. That's somebody who represents the Roman military. And so the people oppressing the Jews in their own homeland. This is a hated person. And yet Jesus heals his servant. And then Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Sometimes in scripture you get like this, this stacking of narratives where like the first one is amazing, second one is even more incredible, and then the third one is like, oh, like in Luke you see the, the lost coin and then the lost sheep and then the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. It's kind of like that third one is supposed to be the most like, oh my goodness, the most jarring of all of them. I don't know why Matthew goes leper to centurion to mother-in-law. I don't know what Matthew's opinions of mother-in-law are. But somehow it's like, oh my goodness, 
A leper, that's fine. Centurion, sure. But a mother-in-law, that's incredible. I love my mother-in-law. That's not how I feel. But Matthew maybe had a different experience. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. And if we see in Matthew chapter 18, verse, or Matthew chapter 8, verse 19, a scribe comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you will go. Like, my life is, is yours. I will follow you wherever you will go. Because the scribes saw Jesus doing these incredible healings, and they were willing to follow him. It didn't matter where he was going. I'll follow you everywhere. But just a few verses later, in chapter 9, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And all of a sudden, these scribes say, whoa, not so fast, Jesus. Whoa, this man is blaspheming. This man is trying to take on something for himself that belongs only to God. We are not okay with this at all. And Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. It's like he set them up. It's like he knew where this was all going to go. And he wanted to confront the issue just to get it out on the table. And it says in verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? What a great question. right? I mean, if you think about that question for a moment. Which one of those is easier to say? Well, I mean, they're both kind of easy to say, right? I mean, what, what makes them difficult? To say your sins are forgiven, who? I mean, all of a sudden now you're taking on a position that we know belongs to God, so that's difficult in and of itself. So we know that that's not easy to say. But to say get up and walk, what makes that challenging? There's some accountability right in the moment, right? Like if you say that and the guy doesn't get up, you, you're kind of seen as a sham, right? So, okay, well, it's hard to say your sins are forgiven, obviously, because only God can do that. But it's also really difficult to say, get up and walk. You see, Jesus is bringing up, you guys, this, this dichotomy that's in your hearts. You, you don't like that I say your sins are forgiven, but you've seen all of these healings that I have done, and you haven't had a problem with those. Why do you think that those are so easy? We know that those are impossible apart from God. And yet saying your sins are forgiven, that's, that's now the line. What changed for you? Jesus is trying to bring out this conflict that exists in them. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man picks up his bed and he goes home. Jesus in this instance says, I'm going to do this physical healing, not as an end in and of itself, but as means to a greater end. I want you to see this as an illustration of something that is happening. I want you to know that there is something greater at work in this moment than just a great showman, than just somebody who can do these really cool tricks, somebody who's even really skilled at healing. I want you to see this and know that there is something bigger going on so that you can know that I have the authority to forgive sins. He tells the man, pick up your bed and go. The physical healing is a reminder of what Jesus is more interested in, which is the forgiveness of sins. That is healing the inside, that part that we would never see, the part alone that God alone can do. Jesus says, I'll do this 
so that you can know I have the power to do this. I will fix this physical issue. I will heal this physical problem so that you can know I can do the greater healing of your sins. And the people rightly are astonished. In verse uh, 8, it says, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They, they respond with fear and reverence. They respond with awe and worship, and rightly so, because Jesus had just done the most incredible thing they would probably see in their entire lives. He had both said he could forgive sins and healed this physical problem. It was an amazing moment. A few summers ago, I had the dreaded, like, Texas problem happen to me that you, you just, you hear about it from friends, you never want it to happen to you. I was driving down the road on one of those days when it's like 100,000 degrees outside, and I have the AC going full blast, and I feel some hot air coming out of the vents, right? Like, nobody wants that to happen. I, when I was in college, I had a car that didn't have AC, and I just lived with rolling down the windows, and they were like the actual roll down the windows. You just kind of deal with it. But I'm a grown-up now, and I don't have to deal with these kind of problems, right? Like, I don't want to deal with a car with no AC. And it just started, like, spitting out a little bit of hot air at me. And, but you notice quickly. You're like, oh, that's not normal. It's not right. So I drove around a little bit more, and I could feel more hot air coming out. Oh, man, this is awful. So I went to Walmart, and I got one of those, like, cans that you hook up to the low-pressure and like put the Freon in it and recharge it. And I do that and it seemed to hold for a while. And for a while I thought, this is fantastic. Okay, whatever, whatever was going on, maybe there was some little leak that the, the stuff got sealed up or maybe it was just low on Freon. Whatever the case may be, I fixed it. Thank goodness. Except that just a little while later, I was driving again and you start to feel that hot air and you're like, oh man, maybe, maybe the first can just didn't take. So I went and got another can, put on the valve, hook it up, do all the things you're supposed to do. It works fine and I'm excited about it. But a pattern begins to emerge where it works for a little bit and then there's hot air and then I go and get the can and fix it and it works for a little bit and on and on we go until I realize there, there's some other problem that's happening here and I take my car to a mechanic. Now I would not be the, I, I, I don't know much about cars, right? Like I wish I knew more, but when I go to the mechanic, I just assume it's gonna be a million dollars to fix anything. I have no idea. You could tell me whatever is broken. I am putting a lot of trust in your hands and so I take it there and I assume it's gonna be an expensive fix and sure enough, it was expensive. They told me there were uh, these problems and they were going through there. But what they said was really going on was there was a, an evaporator core. Does that sound right? Does that sound reasonable for those of y'all that know something? There, there was an evaporator core. It's kind of a benign part. It's not even that big. But to get to it is a, an immense problem. Because you can't just like come through the engine and it's not like there's an easy access port on the dashboard side. You actually have to take the whole dash apart. You have to take the steering wheel off with the airbags. You gotta remove every bit of it to get to this, uh, this evaporator uh, core. It is an incredibly laborious project, not the kind of thing that a home mechanic can do. There aren't YouTube videos for this. This is the kind of thing that you need to entrust somebody with some experience who knows what they're doing? And I said, well, that sounds expensive. And they said, you are right. And I said, but well, I need air conditioning, so go ahead. And I leave my car with the mechanic for a little bit. And after about a week, they call me and they said, your car is ready. 
So I went and picked up my car, and you know what, friends? From the outside, nothing looked different at all. Like, the dash was the exact same. And I was like, you had to take all that apart? Yeah, we did. We took it all apart, put it all back together. And I look in the engine. Nothing about the engine has changed at all. Tires are where they should be. It's not like they swapped the doors. There's nothing, there's no new paint color. From the exterior, every single thing looked exactly the same as it was before. But when I turned on the car, you know what happened? Cool air greeted me. You see, in order for that air conditioning to be fixed, I couldn't just keep fixing it from the outside. I couldn't just take the can and turn it over and do that and hook it up to the low pressure port and pump in some Freon. In order for the air conditioning to be fixed, there was a problem that existed so deep inside that you couldn't see it from the outside. There was a problem that was so deep inside that I couldn't get to it myself. I had to trust somebody with some experience. Somebody with some expertise had to get in there and remove that broken part and put in the new part. I had to trust somebody to do that. Now, from the outside, they could have said, oh, yeah, we did that, when in reality, my car had been sitting there the entire time. But I knew the difference the moment that I turned on the car and I turned on the air conditioning because there was cool air that greeted me. In this story, Jesus heals this man. But he does more than that. He forgives his sins. And we can only imagine what kind of a response that this man might have had. We can only imagine that he went home and when he told this story, he echoed the same awe and reverence and worship that all of the people in the crowd did that day because that's what happens when Jesus fixes the sin problem, when Jesus forgives us of our sins, we should respond with awe and reverence. But too many times, church, you and I and we continue to keep blowing out hot air even after Jesus has done the repair work on us. I mean, sometimes when we look at our Facebook posts, there is so much hot air that's being blown out. And sometimes, when we think about the conversations we have with people, it's just hot air being blown out over and over and over again. And that hot air ought to be a reminder to us that maybe we've allowed Jesus to fix the external things. That maybe we've asked Jesus, hey, can you come and fix these things on the outside? But we've never asked Jesus to fix the real problem on the inside. That we've never paused and said, Jesus, I, all of those external things are great, but I need you to fix the real problem in my life. Jesus, I need you to forgive the sin in my life. That's what I need from you. I don't need you just to give me an easy, comfortable life. I don't need you just to get me that new job. Although you care about all of those things, but Jesus, the deeper problem in my life, the reason there's this hot air coming out of me all the time is because I've never asked you to forgive the sin problem that I have, to fix that sin issue in my life. And church, I want us to take stock of our life for just a moment and consider how much hot air are we blowing out? How many times could we be, instead be the people blowing out cool air, breathing out life to our communities, and instead we are choosing the hot air of politics or anger or nationalism or any of that other nonsense, we choose that hot air instead of being the people to breathe life 
into our community, to breathe life into our family, to breathe out the forgiveness that Jesus has given to us. And so here's what I want to invite us all to do for just a moment. We're going to spend just a moment in prayer. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that we ought to pray for those people who persecute us. He says, of course you can be loving to the people who like you. Even the Gentiles do that. Even the tax collectors. Even the people you would think have no business doing anything uh, that looks like God's kingdom. Yeah, of course they do that stuff. Jesus says the real test, the way that you can practice breathing out life, the way that you can practice breathing out this cool air of forgiveness, the way that you can do that is to pray for those who persecute you. So for just a moment, church, I want us to participate in prayer, but not just prayer for anything vague. I want us to pick someone who has maybe been the object of anger or frustration in our life, and I want us to pray specifically for them. And I, so, as I say that, you probably have somebody in your, your mind who maybe is frustrating to you. Maybe that when you think about them, they bring up anger in your life, and in this moment, for just a few seconds, we are going to pray for them. We're going to do as Jesus asked, and we are going to pray for them specifically. And so, church, would you pray with me for just a moment? We bow our heads, have just a pause of silence. And we are going to pray for that person. Perhaps if we don't know what to pray for, we can pray for peace in their life. That we could pray for provision in their life. We could pray that they understand forgiveness just as we have come to understand forgiveness. And we can pray that they would be people of grace, that they would enlarge God's kingdom in all that they do.